All righty, let's get to studying God's Word together. So grab your Bible, follow along on the sermon guide on our app, and let's dive into week 19 of our 22-week series in Galatians. Today's message is titled, How to Grow Good Spiritual Fruit, and we're studying Galatians, the fifth chapter, 19 through 26. So let's prepare our hearts and minds by slowing down, reading those verses, and praying together, and then we'll dive in. Galatians 5, starting at verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Lord God, we submit ourselves anew to the truth and authority of your holy word in our lives, asking that your spirit would soften our hearts to hear from you and open our eyes to see your work. We need you, Lord, to do for us what we cannot for ourselves. So we ask that you would show us Jesus the Christ, that you would teach us the gospel of grace, and you would make us a people for your glory. For the sake of communicating the goodness and glory of your holy name, we pray. Amen. So, last week, we covered some of the context that frames this week's passage in Galatians 5, 19 to 26. And since that context is important for understanding where we're headed today, I'd like you to jump back just a few verses to Galatians 5, 15 to 18, before we dive into today's passage, you catch all that back and forth there? Verses 15 to 18 are where Paul first introduces us to this important dichotomy of flesh and spirit. It's this concept that the desires of the flesh and of the spirit are opposed to one another. They sort of work against one another. And verses 15 to 18 are where Paul shows us the reason for talking about this battle of flesh and spirit. So start at verse 15. He says, But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If the Galatians continued to allow the leaven of the Judaizers to keep growing in the church, if they allow their teachings to take hold in the church, the result will be internal strife, and division that will, will tear them apart like animals devouring one another. This potential for division is why Paul had just warned them in verse 13. Jump back just a couple more verses. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. He says, do not use, which shows personal agency and control in this spiritual battle. In other words, the Christian is not powerless in this battle. 
that's where we're headed in verses 19 to 26, little preview. But here in verse 13, he warns them, do not use your freedom from the power of sin through Christ as an opportunity for the flesh, to feed the flesh, because that will result in, in strife and division and in many other such works of the flesh that we'll talk about soon, starting in verse 19. So don't feed the flesh, but in order to stave off the sort of ugliness and division and strife from the Judaizers teaching, verse 13, but through love, serve one another. Through the love of Christ, who served us by fulfilling the law and dying on the cross, through love, serve one another. We talked about this last week, but, but, but what Paul's saying here is through the love of Christ that made us free that set us free from the power of sin, serve one another because, here's the reason, the leaven of the Judaizers has the potential to grow to become division and strife that will consume and destroy, as he warned in verse 15. If you bite and you devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. It's it's so important, Paul says, It's so important and the potential for divisive and ugly behavior is so real that Paul says, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. Friends, while we're here, here's a lesson for us to keep division at bay in your hearts and in the church. It requires understanding well for yourself, the selfless and grace filled love that Christ has for you that he showed on the cross and showing that same selfless, grace-filled, and cross-shaped love to one another. If we do not, through love, serve one another, devouring one another will be the natural state of things. But rather, verse 16, he says, But rather, I say, I tell you, walk by the Spirit. As we said last week, this is, a, this is a command. Do this thing. Why? Here. Because this is how you learn to, through love, serve one another by walking in the Spirit. You learn to serve one another through the love of Christ, meaning in accordance with his example, as you walk moment by moment in ways that trust God's goodness by choosing his ways. To walk by the Spirit here does not mean something that feels magical or that is supernaturally imposed as if you have no control. In all of this section, Paul is assuming that the Christian fights this battle from a place of ultimate control to do what is good and right because the heart has already been reborn to hear the truth of God's word. So here to walk by the spirit is key to being able to through love serve one another because it is walking a godly direction moment by moment in ways that trust God's goodness by choosing his ways. In so doing, you're not only demonstrating that you actually believe what God's word says about you in the world, but you have set in your mind and in your life a trajectory for learning to serve through Love, to serve through love one another. So when you do that, when you choose that good and right thing that comes from the heart of God, you will will walk by the Spirit. And, keep reading, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Verse 16. 
You will not feed the desires for people or things as if they hold ultimate salvific weight for you. Think about this awesome idea. If you have Christ in you, Paul is saying here, you will not feed the desires for people or things as if they hold ultimate salvific weight for you. That means that you will know that those people or things aren't worth the desire that only God is worth. That means the spirit of God will grow in you and the desires for the things that come from the evil one, those will die in you because you treasure Christ as the supremely desirable thing, as that which is most worthy of your desires and passions over all other things. The truth of this desire for Christ that kills and weakens the flesh is the truth at the heart of this process of spiritual growth. This truth of walking by the Spirit is at the heart of this process of spiritual growth, Paul says. You walk by the Spirit and you stop feeding the flesh. You weaken the flesh, which is a form of killing it. We'll get to all that later here. But this truth of the idea that our desires, which once made us alive, so we thought, are actually redirected to Jesus himself as the supremely desirable God over all creation and our lives. So as we say yes to that truth, to the things that you know are good and right because God's spirit is in you and he has made your heart new. He softened you to hear his word. As you take control of the freedom from the power of sin to condemn you, as you moment by moment claim the power of a redeemed life to do what God is pleased to have you do, you will see God's spirit grow and the desires for the things that come from the evil one will die in you because you desire Jesus most. In a sense, it's truly that simple. And while it's simple to understand, Paul grants here that it's a little harder to do because this is a battle. And flesh and spirit sort of fight against one another. They work against one another inside us. And it's a battle we fight in the middle of a world where we are fraught with competing desires. So, verse 17, he basically names this truth, this effect of this battle of the desires. He says, for the desires of the flesh, verse 17, are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to one another. They fight against one another, meaning that spiritual growth is spiritual battle, because key thought here, flesh and spirit are working against one another inside of you. He says, verse 17, to keep you from doing the things you want to do, to keep you from doing the good things of God that you now want to do if indeed you're born of the Spirit and you have a new heart. So this internal spiritual battle is going on inside of you with each side working against the other side, but, verse 18, which is often a wonderful word in scripture, but if you are led by the spirit, same idea as walk by the spirit in verse 16. If you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. So if you have God's spirit in you and you hear his voice and you believe in his word, 
if you believe and trust in his truth, then you are showing that you are no longer condemned by sin under the law, but you are now under the grace that saves, which means, think about this. There is a battle going on inside of you. Yes, yes. But it isn't about win or lose in ultimate salvific terms. That you may experience this internal battle doesn't mean you're a lost cause as we often feel about it. Because the cross was already our victory. But this battle, Paul is saying here, is about being able right now, at this moment, if you have Jesus, you're able to win more and lose less. If you have Jesus, the radical truth of what Paul communicates here to us today is not that Christ freed you to be able to win more and lose less against sin in a way that frees you to save yourself because you can't do that. But what he's telling us is that Christ has freed us in the battle against sin so that if you have him and your heart is soft to hear from the spirit, you are free such that you will win more and lose less. Paul saying that is the trajectory for those who are children of God and who have his spirit in them and who have placed their faith and trust and hope in the work of Christ for them. The Christian with time is on a trajectory of walking or being led by the spirit, which means the Christian wins more and loses less against sin. Now, more about that in a bit, but in our passage today, Galatians 5, 19 to 26, Paul starts out by contrasting flesh and spirit to show how this spiritual battle plays out. And he does so in a particular form with two lists of vices and virtues. Vice is bad, virtue is good. He does this in a particular form in two lists of vices and virtues so that the Galatian church can kind of see where they're winning or losing as sort of a self-diagnostic tool. Now lists like this of vices and virtues, they were very common in ancient literature and they would most likely have been well-known by the Galatian Christians. It's the kind of thing that, that every culture in history has used to teach kids right from wrong. In fact, in the New Testament, the New Testament authors took up this literary form, and there are 14 vice lists and eight virtue lists in just the New Testament, and most of them are from Paul. 11 of the 14 vice lists and six of the eight virtue lists. So let's start in verse 16, with the vice list. Now, the works of the flesh, meaning the things that are produced by the flesh. The works of the flesh, he says, are evident, meaning you can't miss them. You know these. You know what the flesh produces. You know the results of placing trust in people or things as if they can carry salvific weight. Not only have you seen these in others, but you've known these in yourselves. So let's briefly define them as we go. The works of the flesh are evident. First, sexual immorality. Now this word, which will sound familiar when you hear the Greek term porneia, refers not only to pornography as we think about it, but to all sexual sin of any kind and any perversion of God's design, including sex outside of marriage and sex outside of biological man and woman. We tracking? It covers everything. Paul probably chose this word, in fact, because it incorporates the Jewish tradition that everything that's outside of God's design in nature is sin. 
The next word is impurity. In case the first word porneia didn't cover enough ground, this word isn't just about being pure in general terms as we think about it, but it focuses on the defilement and the filthiness that's generated by sexual sin and misbehavior. By the way, these words aren't intended to be distinctly defined from or against one another in the first or in the second list relative to one another, but they're obviously listed by Paul in ways that that overlap in some meaning, just in case the other word didn't make it clear enough. So the next word after impurity is sensuality, which is yet another word mostly used to describe sexual sin. But this word emphasizes a lack of restraint and giving into the unbridled passion of sexual license, especially in social settings where that shouldn't happen. In other words, in places other than the marriage relationship, we tracking? I've heard many say that they're following the spirit when they found their true love, who also happens to not be their spouse to whom they're already committed. But according to Paul here, given the first two words we've looked at, and then this third one, people who blame the spirit for their own sin aren't following the spirit, they're following their own sensual passions. By the way, this word sensuality probably also incorporates the idea of being immodest, being a party animal, and even having really long hair if you're a young male. Just kidding about that last one. I'm just trying to find a biblical precedent uh, for poking fun at one of our paid staffers. All right, next two words, which we'll take together, verse 20, are idolatry and sorcery. These both focus on the refusal to worship God alone and to give oneself to a worship, a functional worship, if not even an actual one, to give oneself to worship of the creature rather than the creator, Romans 1. Many of the Galatian Christians would have been familiar with the secret arts of the pagan religions that attempted to manipulate circumstances to bring about human ends. And then the next eight, after idolatry and sorcery, they're all focused on harm that comes to to community relationships. These are all in the same category of the works of the flesh that harm good community relationships, which makes sense given Paul's focus on the church here. So the first of the eight community devouring works of the flesh is the word enmity, which is hatred that expresses itself. Some synonyms might be hostility or, or bitterness or loathing. Next is strife, which three words is unprofitable, selfish bickering. That would be a good three word phrase to remember when it comes to your marriage and other such important relationships. Do not engage in unprofitable, selfish bickering. Not that I need to hear that. Next is jealousy. Jealousy means jealousy. (laughs) It's being consumed by a self-glorification such that passion and desire for the good of others not only takes a backseat, but becomes to us a negative. When others' success or good fortune makes us mad, we have a problem with jealousy. Next couple words 
like jealousy are fairly self-explanatory. The next one is fits of anger, which means fits of anger. But it's more than just childish temper tantrums. It's not just childish anger that's sort of temporary. It's childish temper tantrums mixed with that sort of long-term adult rage that only comes with time and experience. We tracking? If you've ever need to apologize for maybe a hole in the wall or for a thrown plate, you've experienced a fit of anger. And no, I have never thrown anything. Next is rivalries, which could also be translated as selfish ambition. This is like political infighting and partisanship where nothing gets done and everything is divisive. And need I say more? We understand that. Next is divisions and dissensions. Dissensions and divisions are all forms of social, emotional, political, and theological sort of factiousness and and divisiveness that seeks self instead of others. And then to round out the list of eight community-devouring works of the flesh, verse 21 is the word envy. Envy is the desire, uh, not just of, of jealousy that inwardly despises the success of others, but for others' things, a jealousy for others' things in a way that results in personal dissatisfaction with our own stuff and with what God has given us. And then finally, drunkenness, which means being given to regular bouts of being drunk, and orgies, which is a sexual version of the same as in sort of a reveling and carousing and and sexual immorality and the like, in ways that pervert God's design of keeping sex within the close and and quiet and intimate confines of marriage between one biological man and one biological woman. And then Paul, Paul ends all this list by emphasizing that this isn't the entire list of things that are works of the flesh. He says, and things like these. (laughs) Vices like these. In other words, this isn't exhaustive, but these are the kinds of things that flesh produces. And then Paul ends with a really important thought for us to remember, verse 21. Because as I said earlier, this is a battle of flesh and spirit. And we've already been freed from the power of sin to condemn us on the cross. And yet we experience this internal battle. So the fact that we experience this internal battle, does that make us wonder, are we saved at all? He says, I warn you, verse 21, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, and the sense of the verb here for do such things is that those who practice such things as the ongoing trajectory of their hearts, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. So even though we've looked at a list of the works of the flesh here, it's in its own way for those who have Christ in them and can hear God's word and are his children, are children of God, the presence of the internal battle is not by itself anything perhaps other than a reminder that we have God in us to move us toward him and away from sin. And if we are practicing, as he said in that last verse in verse 21, if we are practicing the works of the flesh less, we are on a trajectory of saying yes to God's spirit in us. Which is why he turns next to contrasting the vice list with the virtue list 
in the next few verses. We'll go through this much faster. Verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the spirit, meaning the things that God's spirit produces in his people, like a tree that grows fruit over time and that doesn't require work in us because it's God's spirit working organically to grow in us. The fruit of the spirit of God, then he says, is love, which is likely first as a callback to through love, serve one another. And as a way of emphasizing love as a word that summarizes everything that follows, a lot of ancient writers would often put the most important thing in their minds first. So he says the fruit of the spirit is, is love. Next word is joy. God's spirit in God's children produces joy. Joy is a Holy Spirit gifted and settled state of mind and emotion that feels like pleasure and security, even when also experiencing pain and suffering. Next is peace. Peace is the objective status of knowing we've been delivered from an insecure place of hostility toward God and rebellion against his ways into a place of relational security with him. Patience is the attitude of long suffering that God displays toward his sinful creatures. Kindness is like patience, God's grace-filled response in the face of those undeserving. Goodness describes generosity in a world of evil that constantly tempts to seek for self. Faithfulness is the dependability of those in whom you can have confidence because they show up and they follow through. Their word means something. Gentleness is a humility that responds in ways appropriate to the need, caring for others based on the moment and not from one's own power or control. And then lastly, he ends with self-control, which is the discipline of restraint that keeps the desires of the flesh at bay. And then he says at the end, against such things, there is no law, which is a bit of a complicated phrase. But what he's saying here with against such things, there is no law is that contrary to the Judaizers who went to misinterpret the law and impose it on these Galatian Christians, Paul is saying If you are in Christ, then the law has nothing more to do for you. Like we said in Romans 6 last week, to be in Christ is to become obedient from the heart because God's spirit is in the heart, making you obedient, softening your heart to hear from his word, saying yes to a trajectory of the things that are good that come from his spirit. You see, friends, God's goal was always to produce fruit in his people. The goal of the law was always to produce godliness in his people. Now, let's end with this. Look at verses 24 to 26. Something cool I want you to see here. He says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions 
and desires. We'll come back and we'll end with a helpful thought from this verse in just a bit. Verse 25, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Meaning, those who have God's Spirit in them already have a desire to do what is good and right because the Spirit lives in them. So if that's the case, keep going where the Spirit has you going. Keep in step with the ways in which your heart to hear God's word says, do this thing because it's good and it's right and you desire to do what God wants you to do because his spirit's in you, because you desire Christ, because the things of the flesh that you used to think once made you alive, you know, do nothing for you. So if you live by that spirit, he says, then let us keep in step with the spirit. (laughs) And then... In the last verse, as a reminder, Paul says, doing this is about seeing to it. Not that just that you individually grow, but that those around you also grow and that your growth is their growth so that you fight for a spiritual growth in the context of community with others, especially within the church. Look at verse 26. He says, again, the words let us, which is do this thing, (laughs) let us, not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Don't become self-centered. Don't egg on one another. And don't feed your own discontentment by yearning for others' things, for pining for their things or their status or their circumstances. Okay, so to wrap up, Paul is saying, through love, serve one another. How? Walk by the Spirit, be led by the Spirit. Because the Christian battle is an ongoing internal spiritual battle. But if you have Christ, if you have the Spirit in you, and you have already won through Christ, whose Spirit is now in you, you can still win more and more with time. For you know that the flesh, the works of the flesh, do nothing for you. Instead, give yourself, give yourselves to trusting the fruit of God's Spirit in you. But how, Paul? How? It sounds easy. Verse 24. He says, those who belong to Christ have crucified, past tense, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. We could talk about this verse for a long time, but I want you to think about this. Belonging to Christ means following him to a cross on which you and your fleshly passions and desires have already been crucified. If you follow Christ, it's because you followed him to a cross on which your former passions and desires, the fleshly stuff that used to work sin in you, that you thought made you alive, that has been crucified already. If you have his spirit in you. So you can win more and lose less because in Christ, your previous flash, fleshly passions and desires were crucified. They were killed. They were destroyed. Meaning like crucifixion works, which is a painful and gradual and slow way to die. Your previous desires, if you have the spirit of God in you, they're wasting away. So what he's telling us to do here, 
is to gather around the cross of Christ and to watch them die. He's calling us to gather around the cross of Christ, to remember what he's done for us and how he freed us from sin and condemnation so that we can watch our previous fleshly passions and desires die. Why? Because God's spirit lives in you. And your new desire is for the treasure of the Savior because you know he alone is your only hope. So watch him die and watch your sins slowly die too. Now, listen to a passage from a sermon by a preacher named Philip Ryken on this verse. He describes this well. He says this, as we have seen, meaning throughout this passage, as we have seen, the spirit is engaged in mortal combat with the flesh. The desires of the regenerate nature, the born-again heart in us, the desires of the regenerate nature, they wage war against the passions of the sinful nature. He says, in this war, there will be no truce. The spiritual nature cannot enter into peace negotiations with the sinful nature, nor can the spiritual nature surrender. The spiritual nature must battle sin to the death. Therefore, when the spirit captures the flesh, he says, the spirit does not simply hold it as a prisoner. He commits the ultimate act of war and puts the spiritual nature to death and not just any death. The means of that execution, as Paul tells us here, is crucifixion, which was a slow, gradual, sometimes described as the most painful death. So there's a sense in which becoming who you're meant to be in Christ of the spirit may be slow, it may be gradual, it may also be painful because the stuff that used to give you life, you don't depend on anymore. This is how one famous expositor of scripture, John Stott, explains it. He says, to take up the cross was our Lord's vivid figure of speech for self-denial. Every follower of Christ is behave like a condemned criminal and to carry his cross to the place of execution. So now Paul takes the metaphor to its logical conclusion. We must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. We're actually to take the flesh, our willful and our wayward self, and we're to nail it to the cross. So friends, on the cross of Christ, you are empowered by God's spirit that's now in you to nail your fleshly passions and desires. To choose the greater passion and desire that fulfills forever. That greater passion and desire for your one and only Savior, Jesus, who is the Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we continue to give ourselves to your project in us, which is to say yes to the spirit you've given us, by which we can say yes to crucifying the flesh, to restraining those desires that used to give us life so we thought for the things that we know are the only hope we have not just for the battle against sin in us here and now but in the battle you've already won for us by which we can know you forever as savior and lord father it's it's that awesome project you have for us of sending your son jesus 
to live the perfect life we couldn't, to fulfill the law for us so that we could be free to say yes to your spirit that has changed our hearts to say yes to what you have for us, to be made alive by the good things that come from you, the fruit of that spirit in us. Lord, give us the courage to say yes to trusting, that practicing those things in us is not some sort of duty-bound way to achieve what we couldn't, but to say yes to your spirit. Help us, Lord, to crucify the flesh, to watch it waste away on the cross so that we would say yes to your spirit in us, so that you would receive glory, so the people would look at us and say, that's not natural, that's supernatural. For the sake of your glory, we pray, amen.